Amen. All right. How y'all doing? Good. Good to see y'all. Uh, well, if you have your Bible, uh, I'd invite you to turn it on or open it up to 2 Kings 12. 2 Kings 12. If you're new uh, today, welcome. Uh, we're so glad you joined us, uh, that you found it. It's kind of detached away from the church. Um, and if you're not new, but you just haven't been in a while, uh, whether it's been Cabo or Colorado or Lake Conroe, whatever it is, welcome back. It's the summer. That's just kind of how people roll. Um, as you're flipping and clicking to 2 Kings 12, uh, let's, let's talk a quick uh, conversation on pop culture, okay? Will Smith, Will Smith, Will Smith, <clears throat> as you know, is an A-list actor, media icon, comedian, producer, been in countless shows and movies. Maybe you know him as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, or you know him as Hitch, or the dude in Men in Black, a lot of different uh, places, however you know him. Will Smith has been in the news uh, quite a bit as of recently. Uh, and it's, it's really on account of a number of things. Perhaps the most memorable that you're already thinking of that comes to mind is uh, his less than friendly interaction with Chris Rock at the Oscars, where uh, he comes from the audience onto the stage and slaps him in a very aggressive way that, I don't know, maybe you still think looked a little staged. I don't know. Um, but it, this has become like an all-time meme. He's been in the news a lot since then. Uh, another reason he's also been in the news more so recently, I don't know if you've been, been following this, but he had a new movie release back in November called King Richard. How many of y'all have seen that, by the way? Okay, like two of you. Okay, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, this is a, a movie that's based on uh, the father of Serena and Venus Williams, the tennis icons, and he plays the role of the father in the show about what it was like to be their dad growing up. So it's based on a true story. Well, that movie was apparently an utter flop. It was a disaster. That's two of y'all only saw it. The class I taught beforehand, only one person saw the movie. So they were $10 million short of the budget that they spent uh, to make the movie. So it was, it was a terrible flop. And if you know Will Smith, that doesn't happen. So he was more so on the news for that. Lastly, he's been in the news uh, particularly as of recent due to the publishing of his very own biography, called Will. How many of y'all have heard of that or that he had a biography or have read the biography? A lot of readers in this class I see. No, I actually didn't. I didn't know that he had a biography out either. However, apparently this has been a massive success. This biography, it's a number one bestseller on Amazon, has over 20,000 five-star reviews, came out in November. Um, and now that I think of it, uh, to put my tinfoil hat on, it's interesting that right after the biggest flop of his career, he goes and strikes a dude in the face right before publishing his book. Seems like he's trying to get a little media attention. That's an aside. Um, just kind of thought about that. But one of the reasons why people really have loved Will Smith's biography, uh, apparently, is not because he lists all these impressive things that he did or all the accomplishments that he's had in Hollywood, but, but rather it's just a book where he's very, very real. He's very raw. He's very honest about all the things that are going on in his life that otherwise people just wouldn't know. So he kind of, he steps out of that limelight of Hollywood and really instead kind of shines a light on the deeper, darker, more personal areas of his life, um, including his religious beliefs, which most people, you know, in Hollywood typically stay quiet about. And there's a point in the biography where Will Smith talks about the second hardest question he's ever been asked and the first hardest question that he's ever received uh, that he really struggled to think about. And, he's, and he said, you know, in, in the book, he's like, I've been interviewed by hundreds of people, you know, on news, media, sitcoms, whatever. I, I've been asked literally thousands of questions from philosophers, journalists, talk show hosts. But according to him, those two hardest questions that he's ever had to really think through and answer came from his own 15-year-old son. 
And it came right after his own 15-year-old son started going to church with his grandma. Shout out to godly grandmothers. Um, but Will Smith's son said this after coming back from church one day or VBS or something. And he, he's, you know how children are just kind of honest and open. They just, he said, Dad, do you worship God? And, and, you know, Will Smith, he recounts in his biography, he kind of, he's answered, shrugged it off dismissively. Like, yeah, of course, son, of course I worship God. And then this was the hardest question that Will Smith said he's ever received. And it was, his son responded with that. And he says, dad, are you sure? <laughs> Pretty heavy. Um, the reason I bring up that conversation is because all summer long, we've been moving through first and second Kings. And we've been looking at a number of Kings, their lives, their legacies, their struggles, their successes, their ministries, what they did. And even though every King has their own reign, every, every King was known for different things, has their own unique story, their own unique memoir. What we've seen is that scripture will really give two accounts of the King, uh, of any King. There's a common denominator. Either this King, as the scripture says, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And those are really the only two options. They, they either worshiped or they didn't. They either knew God or they didn't. And that's what makes this text particularly unique for today. Because in, uh, in 2 Kings 12, we're introduced to a king named Jehoash who does what is right. That's what the scripture says. He's like a godly dude. He's not wicked. He's, he's a likable guy. He does the right thing. But as we'll see throughout the story, throughout the account of his life, there's this solid question mark about whether or not he really worships God. Like whether or not he really worships, where his heart is really at with all this. So, you know, if someone were to ask him, King Jehoash, do you really, do you worship God? He's like, of course, you know, I'm the king of Israel. Of course I worship God. But as the scripture will show us, as we read, it almost poses the question back, are you sure? And how do you even know? And what does it even look like? And, you know, I think that's, a, that's such a sobering question for all of us to answer, especially just the, the average American Christian in the South, right? Where, you know, we've grown up in a Christian culture and if people were to ask us, do you believe in God? We'd say, of course I believe in God. You know, I'm not Buddhist. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a Muslim. Of course I'm a, I'm a Christian. What else would I be? You know, I got the WWJD bracelet. I got a, you know, Instagram. I got a verse in my Instagram bio. That's just, you know, of course I'm a Christian. But I think if there was a follow-up question to that, are you sure? it might make us think a little bit harder about where we're really at. And so maybe you're wondering now, okay, well, how do I really know if I worship God? It's not just lip service. Good question. Uh, Cause the reality is you can be doing a whole lot of religious stuff uh, and, and really miss the point of worship and really miss the point of what Christianity is really all about. So today we're going to be reading the entire chapter of second Kings 12, Jeho- uh, Jehoash's life, his legacy. And it's somewhat of a diagnostic. The whole text is towards answering that question of how do I know if I'm really worshiping God. And so if you're taking notes, um, I'm going to just kind of walk through the chapter. And I think the scripture poses to us 10 different diagnostic questions of whether or not we really worship and what's really true of us uh, all along. So that's what we're going to look at today. So I hope you found 2 Kings 12 by now. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV translation. Here's how it begins. Verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, okay, Jehu is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. There's a northern kingdom, there's a southern kingdom. Jehoash is the king of the southern kingdom right now. So it's just kind of giving some reference point in time. Uh, Jehoash began to reign and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. Okay, real quick. If you're a Jew and you just read that line, you'd think of two things. Like two things would come to mind. Your ears would have kind of perked up a little bit and you'd been like, oh, 40 years. That's peculiar because most of these other kings that we've read, they have reigns of a couple months and people didn't like them. So, pa. Got rid of them real fast. They didn't really do the whole impeachment process. It was a quicker, more efficient process back then. Um, or they would reign like two years. 
10 years. 40 years meant stability. It meant you're well-liked. It meant you didn't really cause a whole lot of problems. You just kind of went with the flow. There's no reason for people to hate you. You weren't making a big difference, you know? You weren't jeopardizing people's lifestyles too much. But the phrase reign for 40 years in Jerusalem would have also reminded the Jews of something. Namely, there's only a handful of people who reigned in Israel for 40 years. That was King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. The first three kings where that was the first 120 years of this kingly era of Israel, that was considered the golden age of Israel, where there was peace, there was prosperity. You know, think like peak Christian culture, right? Like everyone goes to church. Everyone has Christian values. You know, like like everyone loves listening to Caleb. You know, that's just like the culture back then. Okay, let's keep reading. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. Okay, I'm just gonna pause right there too. Well, why mention his mother? Because in a patriarchal society and how they did genealogies back then, you wouldn't mention the mother. You'd always mention the father. And so why mention the mother here? Well, it says that she's from Beersheba. That's not insignificant. Beersheba was a place in Israel that was considered to be a very spiritually significant place. It was a place where people met with God, encountered God, came to know the presence of God in a deeper way. It was where people would pilgrimage to Beersheba if they were going through something really hard. To, to, to seek God and, and to hear a word from God. So the fact that she's from Beersheba, it kind of communicates this idea. She's a godly woman. Like she's a God, she was a church member, active church member, you know? It's like saying Linda of Second Baptist, you know? His mom, Carol of Second Baptist. It's kind of like the idea that it's getting at. It's another shout out. It's a nod to godly mothers. So all in all, it's, it's given us a picture so far of Jehoash. He grew up in a Christian culture, grew up in a Christian home, much like us. Verse two. And Jehoash, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Okay, again, another interesting phrase. On one hand, I mean, it's good that Jehoash had a, a, a priest, a mentor, to point him in the right way. But if you read a little bit closer, if you want to look at it again in your, in your scripture, it, it almost reads a different kind of line. Not that he really loved having a mentor, but it was more so that he did what was right because someone else instructed him to do it. So it's this idea that like he was raised, right? You know, there were convictions of other people in his life that made a difference in his life, but it reads as if his faith wasn't entirely personal either. And we're going to see that. You know, I think this is also a, a profound description of how, you know, many of us grew up, we grew up in the church, have parents who are godly, did the right thing, fit the right mold, told us to do what we're supposed to do, keep our behavior in check, but really like what's what's the heart behind it? And like how how personal is What's beneath this thin veneer of just image management? Like Christian behavioral modification, right? Keep reading, verse three. Nevertheless, the high places, they were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and to make offerings on the high places. Okay, what's going on? What are the high, high places? Again, it's continuing to kind of set the context for us. High places were the, uh, the places in just society that were on top of mountains, they were on top of hills, where pagan worshipers would go to worship their gods. Because the hills, the mountains, they represented places that were closer to the heavens. So they would do their sacrifices. They'd do their worship on these high places. Well, the issue here is that God was not a God to be worshipped like all the other pagan gods. There was one place that God had authorized for him to be worshipped, and that was in the temple. And so the fact that these Israelites are worshipping in the high places, it essentially says this. They're worshipping the God of Israel. They're worshipping the one true God. But they're just kind of doing it on their own terms, on their own conditions, doing it in a way that makes them feel like it's fine. 
Yeah, again, I, I think such a, a big indictment on, on, on Christian culture today, where Christianity is rampant, where we ascribe to the one true God, you know, we're not going to deny that, but there's, there's a breakdown when it comes to whether or not we subscribe to how he says he ought to be worshiped about himself. You know, we do things like this. We say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, but I don't really go to church. I don't really like the organization of it, even though that's how God has designed us to go to worship. You know, uh, I even hear this, you know, Christianity, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. You ever heard that before? True statement, okay, I'm not, not bashing that. I think we can also take that a little bit too far where we make it entirely about the way that we relate to God and not only about the way that God relates to us. Where our Christianity becomes too personalized to the point where it looks more like us and less like God's authority. More like my preferences and not his commands. My word, not his. Okay, so it's, it's just painting this context in the first three verses of Jehoash. He's a king, but he's like many of us. Highly Christian culture, good godly parents, raised in the church, knows the behaviors that are good and bad, keep away from, whatever. There's a worship crisis in the culture currently. Keep reading verse 4. We kind of get into the story of it. Jehoash said to the priests, all the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, by the way, this is like a flat tax, the giving standard in Israel, the tithe, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord. So okay, he's saying not just the money that's required, but also the money that people give as a free will offering, a response to the goodness and grace of God, the abundance that God's blessed them with. Um, He's talking about that. Verse five, let the priests take each from his donor and let them, the priests, repair the house of the Lord wherever any need of repairs is discovered. Okay, so what's going on here? So Jehoash, he wants to start repairing the house of the Lord or the temple. The temple is the place of worship. It's the place where God has authorized people to worship and clearly it needs repairs. So he's like, all right, this would be a great thing that needs to be done as a king. You know, I could, I could do a good work here. And but by the way, I, I think uh, probably Jehoiada being his mentor probably has uh, a little bit in his ear. He's like, yo, uh, this is my workspace. Uh, we got leaks. We need new paint. You know, it'd be nice if we had like a little addition right here. He's probably, there's probably some kind of influence like that. And he's like, yeah, you're, you're right. Let's go ahead and do that. By the way, at this point, the temple is 124 years old. It's probably overdue. Uh, for some good renovations, all that kind of stuff. Uh, why are we building, by the way, a brand new children's building? This, that way, that way, yeah, that way. I'm directionally challenged. Why are we building a brand new children's building? Because the ones that we currently have are over 60 years old, and Caroline works in them, and they are deteriorating, and they are exp- very, very expensive to maintain, and it's just going to be more efficient to build a brand new one that we can have for the next 60 years. So we do stuff like that. So Jehoash, he starts you know, wanting to repair the temple. He, he streamlines the money to the priests so that they can take care of the repairs in the temple. Okay. On the surface of things, it's like, all right, this sounds pretty good, right? Like there's an issue and we're going to fix it all for God's name. Cool. Here's the issue though, that most modern Westerners will miss. Believers will miss. There was one person back then who had the responsibility to take care of the temple, to fix it, to renovate it, to pay for it, to repair it. That was the king. Okay, so the costs were supposed to come out of the king's treasuries. The management and supervision was supposed to be on the king's shoulders. It was, it was his duty. So what does Jehoash do? Instead of paying for it himself, he transfers that expense on the private sector, <laughs> makes the people pay for it. And instead of repairing it himself, he transfers that responsibility of repairing it onto the shoulders of the priests, people who weren't subscribed to do it all along. 
So this is one of the diagnostic signs of, of whether we actually worship God, if you're taking notes, number one, is do I take responsibility for my own relationship with God? Or do I transfer the costs and expenses and responsibilities onto other people? Do I take responsibility for my own relationship with God? Jehoash, he had, he had this form of Christianity where he just wanted other people to do it. Other people to vouch for him, other people to pay for it, other people to do what God had called him to do. And as long as he was like marginally connected to it, he felt fine. And this is where it really boiled down to Jehoash, and it's where it boils down for all of us too. That there, were, there were two things he would not do when it all was said and done. Two things, he would not give his money, he would not give his time. It, those are the two biggest things that indicate where we really worship or not, our money and our time. More important, right, than the, just the songs that we sing in worship, right? Songs are great, but our credit card statements reveal more about our worship than our songs. Where we see our money go says more about us than anything else. Where we see our time go says more about us than anything else. Now, I know you got to go to work, okay? Everybody has a job. But 80 hours a week, do you really need to do 80 hours a week? Sometimes, maybe. But constantly? Like, well, what, is that, what does that say? Well, everything else goes to the altar because of work. Everything else goes on the altar for success or status. Romance is great. Get in a relationship. That's God's blessing. But everything in life begins to money, time, sacrifice on that altar. What, what does that tell you about the way that you relate to those things? Where our money and where our time is, that shows us the types of sacrifices that we're making to the real God that we worship. Verse, or number two, diagnostic question is, what, what does my use of time and money say about my relationship with God? What does my use of time and money say about my relationship with God? Verse six, let's keep reading. But by the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priest, of, the priest had made no repairs on the house. Therefore, King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada, the priest, the other priests, and said to them, uh, <laughs> why are y'all not making repairs on the house? Okay, so what's going on? 23 years have passed. Nothing. No progress, no action, no priority. Lots of good intentions, right? Lots of good preparation. Nothing changed. First of all, before we get to like the actual like project management of it all, why is Jehoash just now checking in 23 years later, right? Like this is not a 23-year check-in. This is like an email you send 23 days after said plans, right? It, I, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but it makes me wonder uh, how often was Jehoash actually going to the temple after all himself? I, I, I don't think it was every week. If it's every week, like you have a sharp reminder about what needs to be fixed. You're like, yep, that pipe's still leaking. Yep, that board's still a little squeaky. You know, like, yep, that thing needs to get that. There's a stain on the carpet. It needs to get replaced. The fact that he's just now checking in 23 years later almost makes it seem like he's completely disengaged from what's actually going on at the temple all along. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll have people come to second and <laughs> they're like, they're like, um, like, man, wow, y'all got a brand new coffee shop. Like, when did, when did this open? I'm like, like four years ago, <laughs> you know? And they're like, oh, and I'm like, I'm like, dude, you know, you can't not notice that, you know, you, you just, you call this place your home, but it's good to see you again. You know, <laughs> Like there just hasn't been a whole lot of like presence frequency there. 23 years go by and, and I'm wondering how involved Jehoash was in worship himself. See, it, it almost feels like this as if Jehoash being king, he had this impulsive reactionary moment of obedience. He's like, 
I got to do this. I know this is the right thing. Reactionary, impulsive obedience followed by 23 years of delay and lag and stagnation. Again, I think it's a profound picture that ought to be such an indictment to us as believers as well. Being being a pastor here, I I have more conversations naturally with most people. It's kind of my job, but people who I talk to, it's so many where people have New Year's resolutions, really good intentions, really good plans. They, they, They feel the pain of conviction and zero actionable progress. And then I hear from them two and a half years later, the same thing. Well, you know, I don't really feel connected. Well, you've come to class twice in the last two and a half years. I, I don't know what to t- what else to tell you. Well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really feel like I'm really like meaningfully connecting with the guys in the group. Dude, you've been to small group once in two and a half years. I, I, I don't know what else you want me to say. Zero actionable progress. 23 years. <laughs> that is, by the way, that's the lifespan of like a child, more than that. It's the classic, like, you know, I'll wait until I'm after school until I, you know, get to these priorities of things of God. I'll wait until I'm out of debt. I'll wait until I pay off the mortgage, 23 years, right? Then I'll start, like, really making giving a priority. You know, here's the thing. These people, hear me out. I'm not trying to sound judgmental. They're not bad people. Like, they're good people. They're likable people. But if where's the sense of priority, though? Like, what's important to you is important to you. Diagnostic question number three is this, is, is how involved in worship am I? Like, do I actually make it a priority? How involved in worship am I? Keep reading verse seven. Now, therefore, this is Jehoash still speaking, take no more money from your donors, but hand it over for the repair of the house. Okay, so I love this. King Jehoash is like, okay, so uh, 23 years worth of donations for a project that hasn't been started yet. Uh, so where'd the money go, right? Like, were y'all like investing it in a Roth IRA? Like, is it now in crypto? Like, where'd it go? Like, time to cash in, hand it over. Uh, again, not a question that you should be asking 23 years later. Okay. But where do you think the money is by the way? Gone. All right. Like they spent that money gone. Of course it is. No one's stashing money 23 years waiting for the King to be like, Oh, uh, now you want to send in your budget report. You know, if, if he's never checking in, you're like, I'm getting all this extra cash. No questions asked. Like, you know, the temple's fine. Right. I mean, it's fully operational. I can do a lot with this money. You know, I can buy myself a new house, buy that new Ford Bronco. It's pretty sick. Buy this, that with it. There, there's this, you know, the justifications start rolling in where it's like, that. I just don't know how important it is today. Maybe it'll be important tomorrow. Maybe it'll be important next year. I don't really know how important it is right now, but here's what it looks like. It cascaded into 23 years where nothing had changed. 23 years later, and now they're getting back to the same question they should have been already done with. See, I, I think this is, again, what happens when we, we back burner the things of God. We back burner our responsibilities. We say, yeah, I'll prioritize that when I'm married. I'll prioritize that, you know, once I'm healthy or once I'm not in busy season or once I have, you know, a family, then, then I'll like make those things important to me. It, it, here's the thing, though, like the way that priorities work is that you've already lost, like if you start prioritizing your health now instead of like when you turn 40, you don't get back that time. See, the priests, they had 23 years. They spent the money. It was gone. You don't get that money back when you decide to prioritize it then. It's gone. So the best time to make priorities in your life is like 10 years ago. The best time next time to make the priority is right now, <laughs> not 10 years, 10 years later. 
That's the next best time. Number four, quite a diagnostic question for us. What am I putting off now that I can't get back later? What am I putting off now that I cannot get back later? Verse eight. So the priests, they agreed that they should take no more money from the people. Okay, that's good. Good job, priests. Nope, taking no more money for, from people for a job that you didn't even do. Okay, that's good. Let's keep reading. And they decided that they should not repair the house. Oh, <laughs> great. So essentially, yeah, all right, we'll stop being greedy. We'll stop collecting. But yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to repair it simple. It, probably at this point, it, it was going to cost them of their own bottom line because the money that they were supposed to spend on the temple was already gone. So now if they were supposed to start taking care of the repairs, it was going to come out of their own pocketbook, which maybe they had money for, maybe they didn't. Again, I think another great profound picture of the Christian life, this attitude of, okay, yeah, I'm I'm not going to do this. I'll, I'll stop doing this bad thing, but I'm not going to do like the good thing because that's going to cost me. So I'll, I'll just, I'll just do the, I'll just, you know, keep away from the bad stuff. The other stuff is just too much. Like, you know, it, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, go out and get wasted anymore. It's like, okay, well, you're just going to stay inside all day and like be isolated. That's not exactly like the best, like alternative to a healthy social thriving life, you know, like be involved in a meaningful, like actually healthy, productive way. You know, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop gossiping. It's like, okay, that's good, but I'm not forgiving that person for what they did to me. It, it's like, okay, it's good that you've stopped gossiping, but what, why won't you like, be proactive in, in doing what you know God's call, calling all of us to do, right? It, it, it's, it's this idea of I'll stop with the sins of commission. I'll just embrace just the omission sins of, of not doing what's right. It's, it's a stagnation again of our walk with God. The priests here, they're, they're passive in all this. They have no priority. It's the fifth diagnostic question for us is, is my relationship with God more about what I avoid than what I actively do? Is my relationship with God more about what I avoid than what I actively do? Keep reading verse nine. Then Jehoiada, the priest, so Jehoash's mentor, he took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. And the priest who guarded the, uh, the threshold put it in all the money, put in it all the money, and that was brought into the house of the Lord. Okay, so what do we see here? Clearly, Jehoash's words, they at least resonated with uh, one of the priests, Jehoiada, his mentor, so that's good. And I love what the scripture mentions about, about this, by the way. Jehoiada, he's the spiritual leader, right? Like he's been the mentor, and evidently he had been swept away in all this greed, not prioritizing the things of God, not standing for what is right for 23 years. You know, just being absolutely candid with you, if it's not obvious, so obvious and apparent already, I, as, as a pastor, pastors in general, people who work full-time in ministry, they are just as sinful, just as vulnerable as anybody else to get swept up in greed, not prioritizing the things of God, ironically, even though it is their full-time job to do so. It's not, it's not that hard to not do it. <laughs> just, just trust me. But here's the great news, though. Jehoiada recognized where he was wrong, made changes immediately. He was proactive. He took action steps and made a difference. That's it. He started that day. Question number six, what priorities am I making? What action steps am I taking in my walk with God? What priorities am I making? What action steps am I taking in my walk with God? The truth is we are only going to go as far in our relationship with God as our action steps and our priorities. That's it. 
you're only going to go as far in your relationship with God as your priorities and your action steps. Until then, good intentions are just good intentions. Plans are just plans. Your convictions are just convictions. You're never going to see actual progress being made. We don't want to be stuck there. Verse 10. And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest, they came up and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of who? The workmen who had oversight of the house of the Lord. Okay, so two quick things to note here. They've finally done something. Like finally. Namely, they have a plan. They have a process. They have a place where it's being done. Before... One of the reasons there was no progress is because it wasn't just a lack of priority. It was like a priority that had no procedure, no process, no plan, no path. So, of course, if, if those things aren't clearly defined, your priority is going to go to shambles. I mean, any of our priorities are going to be like that. With exercise, if you're like, I don't have a place to work out. I don't have a time when I'm going to work out. I don't have a rubric of when I go to the gym and what I'm going to do. I don't have a like, meal prep. I mean, you can get like, very regimented. But, you know, studies show that if you put your clothes out right next to the door, you have your protein bottle or whatever right next to that, you know when you wake up, it's looking at you. You're, you're changing your environment, the place, to make it more conducive for you to keep the priorities that you're trying to keep. So without a process, without a plan, without a place, your priorities really don't mean much. But number two, there, there's another thing that I think is helpful here. This priority of worship, it was paired with two people. Who was it? The king's secretary and the high priest. Okay, so having priorities, we know this, is hard by yourself. It's really, really hard. Going back to the the exercise workout example, if you try to do that by yourself, you will not go as far as if you have a buddy to work out with, a person to go running with, a person to eat healthy with. You know, when when, when you tether other people into your priorities, there's a a system of accountability built in that makes it more effective long-term for you to do what you're trying to do. That's true of everything. So, you know, I, I was talking with a guy, you know, not too long ago. And, and he's like, he's like, I, I just kind of feel stagnant in my walk with God. And he's like, what I know I need to do, I need to talk to two people, tether, tether them into my life so that they know what's really going on so that I can actually make action steps forward. Love that. That's what it's all about. We all need that. Diagnostic question for us, number six. Do I have a plan, a process, and people to help me in my relationship with God? Do I have a plan, process, and people to help me in my relationship with God? Verse 11. Also, we hope, by the way, like, what are we doing here? We hope that this is a context where that happens. And and smaller than that, in small groups. Verse 11. And they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, and to the masons and the stonecutters, as well as to buy timber and cord stone for making repairs on the house of the Lord, and for any outlay for the repairs of the house. So, team project. Well done. Verse 13, but there was not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, or any vessels of gold or of silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. For that, the gold and the silver, that was actually given to the workmen who were repairing the house of the Lord with it. And they did not ask for an accounting from the men in whose hand they delivered the money to pay out to the workmen because they dealt honestly. Okay, so these workmen, they're honest, they're hardworking, they didn't even need to ask for an accounting system, even given the, the long history of terrible fraud going on previously, because these guys were so honest, the accounting was just, it all matched. So they didn't even need, really need to work on it. All right, what can we learn here? I, I think there's a contrast being set up here. You have, you have the priests who are dishonest and nothing got done. You have the workmen who were honest 
very honest, everything got accomplished. I think the principle is that uh, only until we start being very honest, like with, our, with God, with ourselves, with other people, do things finally come together in our lives with worship. Things finally start to come together in worship when we, when we start to be honest. I think the reason many of us feel stuck spiritually, speaking from personal experience here, is whenever I feel lagging at its root, I feel like I'm just not being honest. I'm not being honest with God. I'm not being honest with my friends. I'm not being honest with myself even. And here's what I love. Once they were honest, what happens? One, the temple gets built, so they actually get a lot done. But two, they get paid. I mean, they get paid, paid. Okay? They didn't expect payment like that. And again, just a small principle. When we seek God's kingdom first and we're honest, God always blesses us with more than we think. God always blesses honesty. He always blesses us when we put his kingdom first. I'm not saying if you bless God, you do the right thing, you'll find gold and silver in your bank account the next day. I'm not saying that. What what I'm saying is that God always gives you more than what you think. It looks like a cost at first, but really it's a gain. It's a net gain. It always is. Number question number seven, am I being honest about where I'm at? And if not, is that why I'm stuck? Am I being honest about where I'm at? If not, is that why I'm stuck? Verse 16, the money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priest. Okay, so what did the priest get? They got only what they were owed, right? We don't have, to get, we don't have time to get into this too much, but the guilt offerings and the sin offerings, that fell under their job description. And that was it. And I think that that's a good principle to point us to because the, the priest got, with this whole temple transfer of funds, all that, they got a lot of money from this deal. A lot, a lot of money. Abundance came rolling in. How did they begin to relate to God in their new situation of abundance? Like they got all this, all this new pay. How did that change the relationship with God? See, it, life was going well, like so, so well. All this extra pay, they didn't prioritize the things of God. And eventually God took that away and put them right back to where they were. I think for most of us, when God sends abundance our way, it's, it's, it's a test, I think, in many cases to see what we really delight in. Like when we get abundance, we get all this extra money. We get that bonus we didn't expect. What is our heart towards that? Are we, are we going to cling on to it even more? Or are we going to be even more like generous with it? When we begin to get into a relationship, all good things, what becomes of God? Does he get thrown on the back burner or, or because of it, you're, you're even more grateful, even more thankful, right? Like you, you, you begin, you know, to have more recognition, more, more people notice you in the office, status, whatever. Do we think with all of that extra recognition coming in, okay, is this, am I going to make this even more about me or do, is this an opportunity to glorify God and then through it? I think the real test of what we worship does not happen when life is hard. But when life is going really, really well, where there's a lot of abundance, what do you actually delight in? Question number eight, how do I relate to God when I have abundance? To really know whether you worship, how do I relate to God when I have abundance? Here's how the story wraps up, verse 17. At that time, Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. Okay, where is Gath? Gath is 22 miles away from Jerusalem, okay? So basically the Israels, they, they sense this, the Israelites, they sense this threat just over the horizon. And it probably, you know, it probably made Jehoash in particular feel pretty frustrated at God, right? Because he's like, God, I, I'm, I'm just now putting a plan in place. 
I'm just not putting a process, people in place to reinforce these good priorities. And what happens? What do you send my way? War, threat, instability, really? <laughs> By the way, you ever feel like that? Right? Where you're like, God, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to prioritize you. Like, I'm seriously like actually trying to move in the right direction this time. And then you allow this to happen. Right? Like a health crisis. You know, another extended project at work. A breakup. An expense I didn't see coming. You're like, God, are you, are you trying to make this harder on me? Like, I'm trying to like obey you. I'm trying to do the right thing. And you're like making this harder. You're like, are, what's going on? It, that's probably what Jehoash was feeling and thinking too. Let me just say this. Those are not arbitrary circumstances. As believers, we ought to see right through that. This is spiritual warfare. There is nothing more important than our worship. Nothing. And just in those moments when we're trying to get on the right track, now there's obstacles. That is spiritual warfare. The enemy's trying to throw whatever he can to get you off course because he sees you going in the right direction. You know, I, you know, I was talking to this, this guy the other day. You know, I know I'm, that's all I do is talk to people with the pastor, but he, you know, it's, it's been months, months, months since he's ever been to church. And, and he told me, he's like, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it this Sunday. And then he's like, he's like, Hey man, I, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be there. My dog's feeling kind of sick this morning. I think I should run him to the vet. And, and I love dogs, you know, don't hear me out. It's great. But I read that and I'm like, man, the one Sunday you're finally committed to coming and your dog's sick. I just don't see that as a coincidence. God, I, I'm, I'm, I promise I'm going to start giving now. I promise. On the Sunday that you're trying to, you get an expense that you didn't see coming. Car, car breaks down, whatever. That, that, that is spiritual warfare. It's trying to distract you, delay you, put you back in stagnation, give you reasons to justify being where you're at. This happens to us, happens to Jehoash. He's feeling that tension as well. Keep reading verse 17. But when Haziel set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Azariah, his fathers, the king of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house, and sent those to Haziel, king of Syria. And Haziel went away from Jerusalem. So what did Jehoash do here? He paid off the king of Syria, went away. What did he, just, what did he pay him off with, by the way? You catch that? All the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and his own. In other words, what he did is he sacrificed all that was sacred in his life to maintain the lifestyle he was currently living. He sacrificed everything that was sacred to just keep being and doing what he was already doing. See, the the righteous kings in Israel, they expected war. That was like common every spring. The kings went out to war. That's just what they did back then. They expected harsh circumstances. They expected threat, but they moved into those things. They didn't shy away from it because they knew that the Lord would fight their battles. He'd be their protector. He'd be their provider. They trusted the Lord. See, for Jehoash, though, what you see is, is a man who 20 miles away, before it even gets close to him, 20 miles away of threat, slight threat, and he's already sacrificed everything sacred to maintain his lifestyle of selfishness. He's saying, he's saying, God, more important to you, to, to me is my life than your glory. More important to me is my kingdom, not yours. And, and, and this, is, this is another sign of what shows us whether or not we really worship God. It is when pain or suffering comes our way, or, the, or the, even the idea of it, what's the first thing to go out the window? 
Like, like seasons of, of suffering, they show us what we really value. Because when life gets really hard, the important things, they become really important to us. The least important things, you don't even remember them. They're the first thing to go. The reality is that when abundance comes, it's a test to see what we actually delight in. But when trial and tribulation comes, it's a test to see what we really trust in. What do we really trust in when trial and tribulation comes? Question number nine is, do I give up what is sacred when life gets hard or do I cling to it? Do I give up what is sacred when life gets hard or do I cling to what's sacred? Verse 19 now the rest of the acts of Joash or Jehoash, it's his abbreviated name, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So just a heads up uh, as we kind of land the plane. Second Kings 12, it isn't the only place where the Bible talks about King Jehoash. He, his story is also mentioned in Second Chronicles 24, and that version is more thorough and it's more tragic. So if you want to take a look at that later today or this week, go for it, Second Chronicles 24. And we don't have time to look at it today, but, but one thing that's worth noting is that Second Chronicles 24 says this, is that once Jehoiada dies, remember his mentor, his spiritual leader, once Jehoiada dies, Jehoash goes completely off the rails spiritually, completely off the rails. They abandon the temple. They start worshiping other gods. In other words, as soon as that godly influence was removed from Jehoash's life, he didn't care. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about the things of God, nothing. You know, I feel like for many of us, you know, there are so many stories where people you grow up in church, have a godly family, then you go to college, and you're and suddenly the Christianity either does one of three things, really. It is proven to never really have been real to you. Or two, it becomes it gets thrown on the back burner, or or you actually it becomes your own. Your faith is actually your own. Uh, number 10, question number 10 is this. Is my faith truly my own or is it someone else's? When the godly influences are removed from your life, what, what else is there? Is it your faith or is it a faith right on the coattails of somebody else? Verse 20, his servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Jehoash in the house of Milo on the way that goes down to Silah. It was Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomar, his servants, who struck him down so that he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. And that is our tragic story for a happy Sunday morning. Okay, this is what's so interesting. Jehoash, he's killed where? In the house of Milo. That's what it says. By the way, the house of Milo, it's not like the house of one of his buddies. <laughs> the house of Milo was a place, a city, or a little area in the city of Jerusalem. And it really means the term, maybe some of your translations say this, it means landfill. Landfill. It was a place of garbage and waste. Why was he there? Don't really know. But I think the irony is, is so sharp, right? His whole life was spent allegedly repairing the house of the Lord. And yet his house tragically ended in the house of garbage, the house of trash. You know, everything that we can live for in this world, it's cheap. Like A lot of it's just going to waste. It's garbage. It's not really that worthy. What, what kind of kingdom, what kind of house are we really building? When, we, when it's all said and done with our lives, what are we really like building? What are we really living towards? What are we really giving our lives to? You know, to, to, to wrap things up, you know, the main issue with with Jehoash is that his Christianity, as it seems, was pretty much just about behavior. It was image management. It was expectations that he knew that he should probably keep. 
his heart was absolutely disengaged the whole time. He did the right stuff. He did the right things. His heart was completely out of it. See, the, the main issue it, it was there's no priority, there's no passion. But this is, what, this is what I don't want you to do is leave here today and say, ah, I need to do better with my priorities. Or, ah, I, I got to have more passion, more zeal. I got to be more like gung-ho for Jesus. It, maybe you do need to have better priorities in your life. Maybe you need to start stoking the flames of newer passions for God. I'm not going to say that that's wrong. But that thought alone is not going to change you. Maybe you've already tried and you're like, been there, done that. <laughs> Telling myself that I need to do better doesn't actually get me better. It doesn't. Here's what actually changes us. The whole Bible shows us this story. The only thing that changes our hearts, not just our behavior, is the story of a king who, like Jehoash, actually rebuilds the temple of God. And his name is Jesus. Jesus would actually be the reverse story of King Jehoash. He would succeed in every area that Jehoash would fail in. See, Jehoash, he was seven years of age, wanted to build the temple, failed. 23 years of delay, 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 lag time, partying up with his buddies. And then, oh yeah, I'm 30 years old. I should probably like get back to whatever I said was a priority. See, Jesus, he would prioritize the temple his whole life. Seven years old, 12 years old, he was in the temple learning, teaching, asking questions. His whole life was spent prioritizing the presence of God. And at 30 years of age, he didn't just get back on the scene. He actually would become the temple of God himself in his public ministry. He would be that ultimate temple, the presence of God for people. See, under threat and trial, what would Jehoash do? He would just shy away from the slightest thought of harm and possibility of trial. And he'd sacrifice all that is sacred, right, in order to keep his life. See, Jesus, he, he does the exact opposite. He doesn't just see slight harm, slight threat. He sees ultimate and impending death, the penalty and wages of our sin. He sees hell and yet for us walks towards it, sacrificing all that is sacred, his own life. See, Jehoash said, your glory for my life. Jesus says, my life for yours. It's the exact opposite. And see, only a view of that can show us what, how, how glorious this God is. He's worth following. He's worth pursuing. He's worth living for. Everything else is just going to be back to your behavior. You're going to try to be someone you're not. <laughs> The only the root issue is going to cause by a bigger view of God, a bigger, clearer view of who he is to us in Jesus Christ. Only seeing him as the temple, our true temple, where we really worship will change. Another thing else won't. The nice facilities, we got nice facilities here. The people, the expectations, whatever, they can only do so much. Only him, him being the center of our worship is what's going to change us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and what you have to say to us about worship and just the state of of what's really going down deep in our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to get a clear, bigger view of you. And that as a result, God, you'd change us. You'd change the areas of our hearts that are just feeling weak or burdened or just disengaged altogether. God, you'd change us into people who who can be used for your glory in a way that we we see who you are to us. And as a result, we'd be that to, to other people. I pray this in your name. Amen.